Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. Eleven volumes in paperback and ebook format. Ten of them in audible format. All available at Amazon, Audible, and iTunes as well for the audiobooks. I don't really know anybody that's buying the audiobooks on iTunes, but they're available there should you need them. Hey, if you want them, they're there. <laughs> they're there. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> May I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing all right. How about you, Bill? Good, Kev. You know, I got a little bone to pick with one of our listeners, if you Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mention him by name. uh, Well, sometimes it happens, Kev. And as as a New Yorker, I got to defend my turf. You sure you shouldn't forget about it? No, I'm not forgetting about nothing. (laughs) So apparently, a good friend of the podcast and personal friend of mine, David from Oregon, (laughs) has a daughter. There's nothing wrong with having a daughter. Would you agree, Kev? I have one myself. Exactly. As do I. (laughs) But apparently, Dave's daughter, by the name of Brooke, uh, has a problem with my speaking. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. In fact, she told Daddy-O Dave that she found Kevin's voice to be rather pleasant, while Bill's was a little bit wonky. I thought I liked Brooke, and I never even met her. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, in one of the podcasts, she uh, had been listening with a critical ear, and said that my voice sounded a little bit wonky. Can you repeat that, Bill? Because it just sounded a little wonky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. So in an effort to keep everybody happy, including Brooke, <laughs> uh, today I am situating myself a little bit differently on the microphone, and particularly when I'm reading my account. Ooh. So I hope that Brooke... We'll find this pleasing and beneficial to her uh, auditory canal. And Brooke, do you find the voice (laughs) of the black-eyed children soothing? (laughs) (laughs) And do you have a ring camera by any chance at your front door? Yeah. Maybe we could borrow your phone. <laughs> Maybe we could borrow you. Just for a few <laughs> just for a few minutes. 
<laughs> we just want to use your phone. <laughs> oh, yeah, Bill, I was out in Western North Kakalaki this weekend, North Carolina, and uh-huh. uh, went out there to do some skiing. I actually wasn't skiing because I still, uh, I'm still getting over that pinched nerve in my neck and my doctor said uh, you can do just about anything right now except anything that involves a collision or falling i was like okay snowboarding would involve collisions and falling (laughs) yeah forget about that but my bride was uh skiing away out there and we were really close to uh valley crucis which is uh you know uh one of the areas out there where uh there's a lot of bigfoot sightings Uh uh-huh so while i wasn't snowboarding I was trying to keep a keen eye for any type of hairy creature, but didn't see anything. Right. Just a hairy woman on the snowboard next to you. <laughs> I did see what, someone in an inflatable pig costume on the snowboard, <laughs> which was definitely uh, pretty worthwhile. Well, you're assuming it was a costume. (laughs) (laughs) It's very large and pink. (laughs) I think it was a costume. Kept there's nothing like a pink pig with a goatee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my bride said she saw someone in an inflatable velociraptor costume as well on the slopes. Unbelievable. (laughs) It's good stuff. Unbelievable. Can't go wrong. I got I got to get a Bigfoot costume and go uh, snowboarding in that next time. But uh, as long as no one shoots me or anything. Well, that type of costume would be good on sped up film with the Benny Hill song in the background. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Well, so what did you come up with over there? Are we going to discuss something? Uh, no, from, uh, no, we're not going to discuss anything from there. Okay. But we're going to uh, maybe, maybe, because we have Ash Wednesday coming up and Fat Tuesday coming up the day before, mm-hmm. we're going to go down to not the home of Mardi Gras, because I, I learned that uh, Biloxi, Mississippi is actually more the home of Mardi Gras than New Orleans, but we're going to go down to New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. We're going into the swamps? Not the swamps, but uh, into the uh, city that's below water, I guess you could say. Oh, uh, yeah. The actual mm-hmm. city. Okay. And we're going to go back to 1932 hmm. in the Big Easy of New Orleans. All right. And we're going to talk about two brothers called the Carter Brothers. Okay. All right. Have you heard of these cats? No. W.J. and K.J. Uh, Carter? No. No. Nope. Nope. Oh. And not uh, Jimmy and Billy Carter either. <laughs> peanut farmers. <laughs> not the peanut farmers and the beer maker. Um, but this is, uh, the story goes that it's the forgotten history of two New Orleans vampires. Oh, boy. So get the creep on for a few <laughs> minutes here. So, folks, if you have little ones listening, it's up to you whether you want to tuck them in or not. Yeah. Why not scare the bejeebies out of them and let them listen? Again. (laughs) (laughs) So the year was 1932, and a young girl stormed down Royal Street in New Orleans. She was panicked, and her stride was only intercepted by a diligent police officer. Her story sounded a bit far-fetched. She said that she was tied up 
by two brothers, and she was tied up along with several other female victims and held captive so that the brothers could drink their blood. Uh, Afraid so. Uh, you know what just came to my mind, Kev? Uh, untie someone in your basement? No. <laughs> no. No. I just saw Darren McGavin walking into the upstairs room in that house in the movie The Night Stalker. Mm. When that lady was tied by her wrists and her feet to the bed and the bandage was on her neck. Mm. Do you remember that? I do. And it was that that was just so creepy. That was the absolute creepiest thing. I mean, that took Dracula, you know, to a new level. You no, know? and I think I've talked about it on this podcast. I and I don't know, Bill, if you ever read the original Dracula book. Nosferatu. Oh, yeah, but by Bram Stoker. Yeah, good old Bram. 1920s or so. Have you read that? I have not. Oh, man. It is the creep fest. Yeah. And, folks, you want to get the creep on, I think you can download it for free on your Kindle or on your computer with the Kindle app because it's out of copyright, right? It's so old. Right. And I downloaded it when I first got a Kindle many years ago. I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but it's a vampire tangent, so it's related. And at that time, I was traveling a lot around Europe, as you know, Bill. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm not traveling around there now, but then I was like crazy all over the place. And I'm reading this book, this free download of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I never read it before. You know, I've seen the movie, stuff like that. Saw the play on Broadway way back when with Raul Julia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the stuff is scary, but not not really like spine tingling horror. Yeah, yeah. The book is spine tingling horror. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm reading this book while I'm traveling. I'm traveling by myself and I'm in Budapest. Perfect. Yeah. And Budapest is right across the Danube River from Romania. No. Nah, and right up the hillside in Romania is Transylvania. Uh. It's a no. real place. Yeah, yeah. And the legend of Count Dracula is based on some fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Vlad the Impaler. It's based on. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading this book by myself, having a cup of coffee, getting ready for my meeting the next day, and I have chills. And this guy, I'm supposed to meet this guy, who's one of our partner resellers at the time. And he's like, let's meet for a drink, you know, at this uh, place, this basement bar in Budapest. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And I go, and I'm like, hey, cool, where do you live? And he's like, oh, I live across the river in Romania. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, do you? <laughs> and he looks a little bit like a grown-up Eddie Munster, full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story absolutely true story too by the way and I'm like oh uh, where do you live in Romania and I'm thinking he's going to say like the capital city or something like that and he's like oh no I, well I actually live in Transylvania oh in Romania and I'm like oh well, I guess somebody has to live in Transylvania <laughs> and I'm like so are you from there or you know did you move there from somewhere else and he's like Oh, well, myself and my family have been there for 600 years. Wow. 
Oh, indeed. Think about that quote, Bill. Yeah. Myself and my family. I'm like, I'm sitting there like, holy crap, I just closed this book. Yeah. <laughs> like, does that mean you're 600 years old and yeah. I'm never going to see the light of day again? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds to me like you haven't died. <laughs> and then the whole rest of the time I'm looking at him thinking, his teeth look a little pointy. Yeah. And the fact that he looked like Eddie Munster. Well, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, back to the story. Yes, the yes. Easy. The girl running down the street. Yeah, the running down the street. Meets a police officer. Um, and he's like, her, her story sounds a bit far-fetched. She says that she's tied up by two brothers along with other victims and held captive so that the brothers can drink their blood. So, mm. you know, the cop's like, yeah, okay, this is New Orleans. Probably had a few too many glasses of uh, hurricanes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the girl claimed that she was able to escape because uh, she got out of the ropes that were tied to her wrists. And somewhat skeptical, the police agreed to follow her back to the home on the corner of Royal and St. Anne in New Orleans. And once the police and the girl arrived at the home, which was owned by the Carter brothers, they were horrified to find, as the girl had described, four other victims, half dead, tied to the chairs in one of the rooms. Ugh. Get this, Bill. This gets back to your Night Stalker. Ugh. All the victims had their wrists wrapped in bandages, moist and stained with blood. Ugh. Two more bodies wrapped in blankets were tucked away in yet another room. The unmistakable suffocating odor of death permeated the apartment. Ugh. Hey, I promised horror. You got horror. Wow. Yeah. What year was this? Uh, what are we, 1932. Wow. So it seems that the brothers had left early each morning, just before daybreak, and returned every evening just after dark, right? They had to stay out of sunlight, so they probably buried themselves somewhere. Ugh. And immediately upon their return, they would take the bandages off each of the captive's wrists and using a knife, reopen their wounds until blood flowed freely from the victim's cuts, and they caught the blood in cups from which they drank until their hunger was satisfied. Oh. And then they would bandage the wounds up again so that they could come back the next day. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God, the freaking sickness. Oh, yeah. Ah. Oh. Even back in 1932, people were nutso. Yeah, well, there's no shortage of nutso. I know, I know. So, you know, they didn't know that uh, the two brothers, John and Wayne Carter, didn't know that the woman escaped, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, the police waited there for the brothers to return. So, you know, it was daytime, so they weren't around. They waited, and uh, the brothers were quickly apprehended. And upon their capture, confessed almost immediately. Get this, Bill. Begging to be murdered. Mm. The brothers explained to the police that they were, in fact, vampires. 
and would, if released, have no option but to continue to kill, as their need for drinking blood was beyond their control. Um, what did these guys do for a living? That they didn't say. By the way, folks, that tapping you heard was me stacking my papers like a news broadcaster on my <laughs> desk. I, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I'm just oh, I like, know. I told you, this is going to be creepy. But it's interesting, too, that they asked to be killed, but, you know, they can live forever, depending on how they're killed, right? So, you know, but the, it is uh, said that the brothers were tried as serial killers, you know, appropriately, and convicted and eventually executed. Mm-hmm. Never to be seen again. Well, you know, maybe. Yeah. Never checked their graves to see if they were in there. Yeah, yeah. Boy, oh boy. How's that for creep? That is freaking absolute creep. <laughs> wow. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, can you picture the horror of this girl and the other girls and whoever the poor souls were that were wrapped up in the blankets? Uh, we don't know anything about the girl or where, where she came from or anything? Or? No, I, I assume she was a local New Orleans woman, you know, that they kidnapped. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's why people got to be careful when they're traveling around. There are there are people that will put the snatch on you for nefarious no reasons. The stories are ridiculous, right? Yeah. And yeah. and rampant. Yeah, yeah. So you need to uh, you need to uh, like I say in the podcast, always carry more gun than you think you're gonna need. Yeah, Bigfoot is the least of your worries, unfortunately, out in society. Yeah, you know, I want to just tell you something, and then I'll, I'll move away from it quickly. I was interviewing a search and rescue fellow. Uh, Jason, if you're listening, good to talk to you. Uh, Washington State Search and Rescue. And during our interview, I said to him, uh, you guys carry guns with you, right? Uh, And he said, "Uh, not exactly. Hmm. Apparently, the state uh, told them they could carry a gun in their car, but when they're doing the missions, they can't carry it with them. Hmm. Isn't that nice? Oh, I forgot I had this holstered to my hip. Yeah, let me take it off as I enter the woods into danger, <laughs> and I'll leave it in my glove box. Hmm. You know, this stuff is just nuts. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. But, uh, wow, Kev, is that it? That's it, man. Well, I'll tell you, that's enough. Big easy. That's enough. I don't know if I could take much more of that. (laughs) Wow. Well, let me introduce you to the beginnings of what it is I'm doing here, and Kevin is now doing with me. My initial query into sourcing these uh, accounts that you hear had invited uh, fishermen, hunters, hikers, all kinds of people to contact me. And I was looking for, obviously, those who had either seen a Bigfoot or had believed to have found evidence of the beast's existence. And the variety, as all of you know who listen to us uh, or have read the books, of those who have contacted me is literally unending. Uh, Many of the people that 
have been interviewed did not really fit the the bill, so to speak, the description of my initial request, but nevertheless, they felt necessary to contact me. And I had always asked the people to give me as much detail surrounding the happenings uh, uh, that they could muster up. And I asked all of those that I interview, even to the state, to recount as much as possible uh, in reference to the details. Now, this fellow's name was uh, Peter, well, let's just call him Peter without me spending too much, Peter Edwards. Uh, and this is what he had to say relative to his life in Alaska. My family has lived in Alaska for well over 100 years with my great-grandfather first settling here in hopes of finding gold. Although he did find some gold, he found himself also learning the craft of setting traps and snares to acquire pelts and furs, which in and of itself can be quite profitable. Back in my great-granddad's day, there had not been many regulations here, nor were there people who enforced them. As for myself, in these days and times, there are a number of critters that I trap throughout the seasons. However, this story surrounds the trapping of martins. The martin is more commonly known by fur coat buyers as the sable. They have a beautiful and extremely soft coat of reddish-brown fur. And depending on the market prices, these pelts can be quite profitable. Each year, I bring in between one and 200 marten pelts. Now, the real trick in trapping a marten is to find their habitat and locating the animal's specific territories. If you've done your homework and provide the right bait, the animal's characteristic curiosity will ensure you that you capture them successfully. It is in tracking the marten's prey that you will uncover the marten's habitat. Find the food source and you'll find the consumer. Martins are not as aggressive as hunters, and their diet seems to be rather broad, with their favorite food being pine squirrel, the pine squirrel. However, they have a taste for many other things as well, such as hares and ptarmigans. So if you're going to bait well, you must also hunt for their favorite prey with great efficiency. Great granddad loved to use beaver. But I prefer to use fish as my bait, and I generally add a bit of skunk essence to any of my baits in order to spice them up. If it stinks, the martens will come. Now, there are two ways to capture a marten. They can either be caught above the ground or on the ground. Obviously, this requires two different styles of traps. On the ground, we use what's known as a combo box conibear set and one can also use a foothold trap. But the modern conibear works quite well. Off the ground, I use a leaning pole set, which requires a nice stiff branch in order to set it up properly. On some of my traps, I hang the shiny lid of a tin can, which is a trick that my granddad had passed on to me. The Martins are inquisitive and the sunlight or moonlight reflecting off of these lids seems to draw them in. On some of my traps, uh, da, 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 I already read that. 
One of my choice areas to trap is Granite Creek. And more often than not, I will set my trap string over quite a long distance. Trapping is not a business for the weak. And depending on the population density in different regions, you may be fortunate to catch a marten or two for every mile or so of trap line that you set. You could do the math bill relative to the amount of effort and hiking involved in setting one's trap line. All being done on difficult terrain to navigate on foot. I'm setting the stage here, folks, with Peter's infinite knowledge of this trapping to bring you to an end result, which is quite spectacular. My routine is to put out a set of about 10 traps. The location of these placements is based on several factors, including locating tracks and finding the food sources, with the presence of vegetation also being a must. My most productive traps are often located near the zones where the swamp meets timber, or where a river meets the timberline. I also keep a detailed log as to the whereabouts of my traps and what was taken from each one year to year. What I sent to you, Bill, was a copy of such a log before we met. Now, I have to interject here for a minute, folks. The detail in Peter's log was incredible. And it was from this very log that the details and findings, which you will soon hear, were taken. Now, let's return to Peter's account. On this day, I had gone about setting my line in the usual fashion. And later on in the week, I returned to check the traps. Everything was fine until I got to the ones located by the timber line. This area has some low-lying hills that run right up to the timber, as well as a fair amount of varied and well-dispersed vegetation. I had seen a large population of hares and pine squirrels working in this area, and I had actually set three traps in a one-mile span because it looked so promising, even though one trap per mile tends to be typical for me. When I came upon the first pole set, it was ripped apart and the trap had been sprung, which is very hard to do without the strength and dexterity of human hands. There was blood on the trap, so I could tell that a marten had been caught in it at some point, and something or someone had stolen my marten. This got me aggravated because men can and do often rip off other trappers. When I approached the second trap, I was shocked to see that the same thing had occurred. If I hadn't been mad before, I was certainly mad now. Proceeding onward, the rest of the traps had not been tampered with, and I actually had done quite well despite of this apparent interference. With all of the traps reset and baited, I finished my loop and left. The next time I came back to check them, I was met with the grim realization that all of my timberline traps had been opened, each one of the traps having caught a marten, and all of the martens having been stolen. Now, three out of three traps having caught something is damn near impossible, but three out of three traps being found open and the catch removed is beyond impossible. It wasn't until I had made it all the way down by the marsh's edge that I began to realize what was going on. 
The marsh trap was set inside of a soft area, and the marten had also been stolen from it. And next to it, I could see some very large water-soaked impressions in the muddy soil. Now, there was no way of telling what types of tracks these were, since the depressions were so soggy and indistinct. So I guessed it was a bear. I had never experienced such a thing before. The only thing I had ever seen was some evidence of a lynx or a fox tearing at the flesh of a marten while it was snared in a trap. But I had never come across open traps and the prey completely removed from them. This was most unusual, so I decided that I was going to place two bear traps near the marten traps. I would conceal them totally and post them into the earth to secure them. These bear traps would, requ would require a considerable weight to trigger them. And if there was a bear coming to my traps, I would get it. The first time back through my set, with the added bear traps in place, nothing was awry, and I had gotten four martins. So I reset and baited everything in the same way I had always done. It was on the following check that things got a little weird, which is why you and I, Bill, came into contact with each other. After seeing the previous set had been untouched, I believed that all was well and that whatever or whoever had robbed my catch had moved on. But that was about to change. When I reached the second bear trap, my set was destroyed, and the bear trap was not only sprung, but it was empty. It had been jammed into the ground some five or six inches deep, which is not an easy thing to do with a wide steel object that weighed north of 40 pounds. I examined it and saw some blood, indicating that something had gotten caught by it and had escaped. That in and of itself was beyond belief. I started to look around for further evidence, and my eye caught something lying about three feet from where the trap had been set. At first, I thought it was a bloody portion of a large furry paw, which had been sheared off in the bear trap. But upon closer inspection, it was not a paw at all. It was a hair-covered segment of a large human-like foot. It appeared to be the front half of the foot and featured four very large, very wide toes. I flipped it over with a stick and saw that the sole was flat and leathery. But here's the really odd thing. It had no claws, just thick, nasty-looking nails. Each of the toes was between two and a half and three inches wide, very thick and about three inches long. I knew it wasn't a bear's foot, and it certainly hadn't come from a human. It had to belong to a Sasquatch. I set about to do a little tracking. There was still some snow around under the trees here and there, but most of the area was completely devoid of snow. I followed the trail of blood 
which brought me into the timber, and there were still some patches of snow there where I could see large footprints. One print was from the bloodied, chopped-off foot. The other print appeared as normal. I could see the other undamaged foot was about 22 or so inches long and maybe 10 wide. This thing must have been in incredible pain and limping badly when it left the site. And who knows where it was going and if it would be able to survive an infection or anything else that would occur from such a wound. I dared not follow any further in pursuit of a wounded monster. And I never set any traps in that area again. There you have it. Wow. So this uh, Bigfoot lost a, you think it's a foot or a hand or? The front portion of one of its feet in the bear trap. Instead of get somehow, instead of getting it around the ankle or whatever they do. Probably because it's too big. I I don't know. It's, it caught the foot and sheared it. Uh, or it was so badly damaged that the Bigfoot was able to pull the trap open and maybe even yanked what was left of his foot off and just left it there. Mm. Freaking unbelievable, huh? Crazy. Fur trappers. You know, mm. dudes that are out there. Fourth generation fur trapper from Alaska. Mm. I wonder what great-granddad and granddad had seen. A lot. Alaska, I mean, you know. You know what I mean, The Kevin? final what? frontier. Yeah, what did And these I don't mean guys, Star Trek-wise. Yeah. What did these guys encounter during their lives, fur trapping and gold mining up there when there was, like, nobody around? Jeez, it's, it's hard to believe, man, the lives that some people choose, you know. Crazy. Uh, maybe they don't choose. Maybe you don't know any better. You just stay where you are. You know, you figure, oh, this is my lot in life. True, true. But uh, bizarre, huh? Trapping Martins, the bear trap, the pole trap, you know, tin can lids to reflect light off of them. I mean, it's bizarre. But this is their deal. You know, you and I aren't thinking about this kind of stuff, you know? No. Ground traps, off the ground traps, baiting them with fish and skunk essence, and yeah, what the heck? Yeah, yeah. And he said his grandfather used to bait them with beaver, so I guess he'd catch beaver, skin them, chop the beaver up, use the beaver for bait to trap martens. So it was like a continual cycle of life there, you know, or death, Mm. using one to catch another, to catch another, to catch another, you know. Wasting nothing. Mm. Incredible, huh? Unbelievable. So there you have it, my friends. Little fur trapper evidence. And vampires sucking blood out of women's wrists (laughs) in uh, Louisiana. By the way, folks, if you're new to the podcast, and we know there's always new people, our first segment is called Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities where KJ uh, does an excellent job of bringing some odd and unusual things to the table. 
uh, and occasionally a Bigfoot related. And occasionally uh, but, we get the creep on. By the way, Kev, did you catch that video taken through that spotting scope? Oh, we're actually going to talk about that in listener mail. Okay, yeah, let's, I'm going to save it then, man. That was incredible yeah. footage. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Let's go on with our listener mail then, Kevin. All right, well, let's go. Well, the first one is a quick one from Barb from Western Pennsylvania. And she says, Bill, I heard you on Coast to Coast. Great episode. Was sitting on the edge of my seat even in the middle of the night. Greetings to you both. Listen to your podcast and love it. Barb. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, Bob. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been on coast a few times, and uh, I always enjoy it. You know, anytime you can get out there and talk to Harry, man, uh, count me in. So glad yeah, what you, you guys, What did you guys talk about? Just a bunch of uh, different encounters woven in? Well, you know, uh, Richard uh, Sirrett, uh, he particularly likes the ones that uh, introduce the nasty side of the hairy man. Mm. And, of course, my uh, consensus is that there is no nice side to the hairy man. And, you know, I always say this, Kev, if you meet Bigfoot and go home, you've had a really good day. You've had a good day, yeah. So I don't think the nasty side is... Uh, a game changer with Bigfoot. I think they are inherently uh, like a cougar or any other critter that could just turn on you in a heartbeat and you're in harm's way. Mm. So, you know, that's that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. And with that, we're actually going to go to an email related to that, okay? Okay. So this comes in from Eric. And the subject is, they are evil and they hate us. <laughs> so where do you think we're going? <laughs> They're evil and they hate us? He says, uh, I'm a dedica- I've been a dedicated listener for nearly two years now, and I love the show. Um, my interest was sparked, my interest in Bigfoot was sparked by shows like In Search Of with mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy. And by the way... Eric, me too. That's my earliest memory of Bigfoot is watching In Search Of, which at the time was in the movie theaters Mm -hmm. as like a lead-in to a movie. Of course, this is like 105 years ago. Um, And then he says also Unsolved Mysteries in the 1980s. And it has continued to grow with the array of great TV shows and podcasts that follow. And he says, recently, I ran into you, Bill, on someone else's podcast, and it was amazing, and I really got into uh, uh, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods and started listening to your podcast. But in this particular episode, they were talking about how this Bigfoot seemed to come after them like it was angry and like Mm -hmm. it didn't like them Mm -hmm. and it wanted to kill them. Hmm. So he said, you know, this story left me pondering, why is there such a deep-seated animosity and hatred from these creatures towards us? You know, it seems to be a common thread in many encounters. And, you know, what what do you think of this? And he says, thanks for engaging content each week. I'm always looking forward to the next episode, Eric. Hmm. 
Ted, what do you think? I mean, you've been at this with me for a while now. You've heard a lot of tales. Uh, when somebody says something like that to you about this creature, and you know my feelings about it, what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, it, I think they're wild animals. You know, we could argue about how intelligent they are, you know, if you get offended by me saying they're an animal, but we're animals too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, you get the whole plethora in a wild animal. You know, like mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time in the salt water, in and around the salt water. And like, you know, I always tell people if I, after I go swimming with them, if I want them to go swimming and enjoy a holiday weekend or something out at the North Carolina coast, I'll be like, you know, there's a lot of sharks out here, but we don't have a lot of shark attacks because not all the sharks want to come and bite you. You know, they'd rather eat a fish or something than, you know, take a bite out of a bony human and risk getting killed over it. Um, and I think that, you know, Bigfoot is not unlike any other wild animal. Some of them, like bears, are probably the closest for me to relate to. You know, if you come across a mama bear and her cubs are there, she'll probably kill you just to protect her cubs, but not because she just wants to kill you. You know, it's about the protection. Now, other bears and or Bigfoot may have had a really bad experience, maybe a near-death experience, Last time they ran into someone that smelled and looked like you, and therefore they got it in for you, even though you may not have been there. You may mm-hmm. not have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, you know, it's a, it's a little random what you're going to run into. But I don't think they all hate us, you know, and want to kill us. I, I think, I don't think that's, uh, you know, woven into their mindset, in my opinion. But there's certainly some of them out there that probably have had some experience and learn that, you know, they, if they see us, they should kill us. Otherwise, they might get killed. Yeah, to, to me, it's, a, it's an opportunistic event. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's, it's simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. You just happen to pull the unlucky card and... Uh, you know, I hope you make it. <laughs> That's it, you know. You know, but I mean that could be similar to what I'm saying, right? Depending on what they what they thought of you last time around. You know. Yeah. Not rich, you literally, but their human encounter last time around. That's right. And and you don't know what their experience has been, you know. All right, Bill, and our next email comes in from Michael G. And this is what we were getting to a little earlier when we were talking to one another. Mm -hmm. He writes in about Bigfoot captured on a spotting telescope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he says, hello, WJ and KJ. Ran across this video on YouTube filmed high atop the Wasatch mountain range using a spotting telescope. The figure is hard to find at first, but it's toward the bottom left center of the video. Thought you guys would like to have a look for yourselves. As you always say, if you see something, say something. Uh-huh. Been listening to your podcast since the giddy up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great shows as always. And, and he his- sends us the link to the YouTube, which I'll put up on our uh, website, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, podcast 235. So what do you think of that, Bill? It's like a snow-covered mountain range in the Wasatch and something moving along pretty quickly from left to right on this steep 
snow-covered, uh, yeah, well, geez, it looks like a super steep ledge, right? Yeah, on it, you can see initially that it makes its way up to what looks like, to my eye, like just a little outcropping covered in snow, and it stops briefly. Yep. And then it gets its giddy-up on and just goes <laughs> nonstop up this slope, an incredible distance at very good speed. I mean, no human being under any circumstances is covering that ground without stopping and huffing and puffing, and certainly not that quickly. No, crazy. I mean, you couldn't stage it. You just couldn't stage it. No guy in a suit. That thing must have covered, you know, what do you think, Kev? It had to cover like three quarters of a mile or something. It was definitely moving along and moving up on this crazy snow-covered ridge. Right, and that was a steep incline. You could tell just looking at it. Yeah, no, super steep. And just like above the tree line or and or with a couple of treetops, just the treetops, a big uh, evergreen sticking up over the snow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, jeez. Yeah. Now, you know, when folks say, you know, oh, in this day and age with all the cameras, where are the pictures? And then you come out with pictures like the one we saw crossing the creek by that kayaker keb, uh, yeah. the one in the swamp, uh, this one, uh, the, 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 the critter on the uh, game cam 50 miles over the Idaho border that I got, uh, you know, man. Come on, people. You know, all of this stuff isn't CG. No. You know, these critters are getting caught. And as a matter of fact, not just Bigfoot, uh, uh, Rich, uh, a retired logger in Washington State, a friend of mine, a friend of the podcast for many years, uh, he just sent me yesterday two pictures he picked up on his game camera in Idaho. And uh, it shows this big cougar. Oh, yeah. Prancing around, looking around. You could see him. The camera caught him twice. I mean, I don't know what the weight of this cat is. I mean, it's hard to tell on a little game trail camera, but he looks to be at least 150 pounds. I was going to say, they're between 150 and 200 pounds. Yeah, it's it's. it's I've not... seen them when I lived out in Washington State, and they are, like, fierce. Yeah, and this ain't no little pussy cat, you know. So when you're talking about what's around out there and what you can catch on film, you never know what you're going to get, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I don't even know when good, reliable trail cameras came into vogue. Uh, Some hunters out there may be able to tell us, but... uh, Yeah, I mean, I'd say off the top of my head, 10 years or so, but... Good ones. But you still got to put them out there, Bill. You know, they got to be in the spot where the critter's walking by. That's right. So these these are things are used by diligent folks. Whether you're just a hiker and very inquisitive, uh, you're a hunter and you're looking for your next uh, eight-pointer, yep. you know, people are out there doing the legwork, and then you have people who are criticizing what they're doing. So I'm not going to yeah, be 100%. the one. I'm I'm not going to be the critic. Nope. So well, that's it this week, Bill. Good podcast. We got to creep on. We had a great Bigfoot encounter with the Martins or 
Sable Trapper up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, folks, if you haven't left us a five-star review lately or a, a written review for us, please do. We love to hear from you. And those five-star reviews are virtually the only way we have to attract new listeners to the podcast. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, and Kev, as you know, I had dinner tonight with Sue and Eddie and little Eddie. And Sue says, I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> oh. So, Sue, hello to you. And uh, glad to have you on board with our Bigfoot Terror in the Woods podcast. And by the way, folks, if you should be out wandering around in southeastern Alaska, western North Carolina, or anywhere else for that matter, you best remember one thing, my friends. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.